My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the products, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits. And we'll bring to you a vast variety of knowledge covering a wide range of events. My next guest, Peter Stanley, comes from Triple Jump, which was the event that I was involved in as an athlete and then later as a coach. Peter coached probably the best triple jumper who ever lived. Jonathan Edwards, not only world record holder, but a superb technician and a superb competitor. But Peter came in, he tells me, from a different route from normal. So can you explain that, Peter? Yes, I can. I actually thought it was the normal route almost. <laughs> I knew nothing differently. I introduced to athletics at school yeah. and I did long jump, which I enjoyed thoroughly. And I mixed that with 1500 meters, so good mix. I lost contact completely with athletics. I played football, enjoyed football, fairly decent at it. I had a couple of children. I went to watch my daughter, normal school, sort of sports day. And she duly went off and did three events in one or three. And this, um, this guy just walked up, marched towards me, about five foot four tall, absolutely shone. His skin just shone. And he introduced himself with, um, my name's Rippon Hall. I've never been in Durham jail and I always wash behind my ears. And that was an introduction to me. <laughs> and I'd like to coach your daughter. And I just said, what in? Um, having little or no knowledge. And um, we, we got chatting. He was a life president and a coach at Elzig Harriers. And um, he was looking for um, multi-event type athletes, just to diversify just a little bit from the normal Harrier type club. That's remarkable. Eh? If you hadn't met him through your daughter, you know, you probably would never have engaged in athletics at all, would you? No, probably not. John would have done something else, netball or um, hockey or whatever it may have been. We lived at this time. Um, in Durham, and he lived in the same village. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. So you don't want me taking your daughter anywhere. Why don't you come along? This went on for a few weeks, and then I started taking him along in my car as opposed to him um, taking us. He just hooked me and reeled me in, to be honest, Tom. During the winter, I said, sort of, um, don't sit there in the gym on, the, on one of the benches. Come and stand beside me. Listen to what I've got to say to everybody. And then we just had these very, very animated conversations. And he excited me with his knowledge, something I'd never known before. That's remarkable because, uh, you know, that's the most unusual routine. Ripon wanted, yeah. certainly sort of, I was going to say, earmarked me to be involved in all events if I could. And at the end of the session, he would get me to do some block starts and me to do some shot perts and me to do a little bit of jumping. So it was great. And I loved it. At the grand old age of whatever it may have been, 26, 27, 28, he actually became, I'll call him an adopted grand and his wife, grandparents to both our children. Oh, that's great. And how did you come then into Triple Jump? What took you there? Um, well, again, became the assistant coach to Ripon, basically, and we were covering all events as best we could. Then Ripon introduced me to Carl Johnson, who was based in the Northeast. I think he was also, I'm going to call him director of education of what is now UK Athletics. Yeah. Carl took me under his wing. At this stage, I didn't know that Carl was coaching uh, Jonathan or anything like that. So that, that was my grounding with him. And we talked about throws. Yeah. But he needed 
a regional coach for horizontal jumps. So he was sort of pushing me towards long jump, which was one of my loves from being a child. Um, my, one of my first memories was watching Lynn Davies and Mary Rand both taking gold medals on a grainy television in 1964 in Tokyo. I was directly above Lynn when he made his jumps. Oh. And it wasn't off cinders. No. It was off mud. Mud. <laughs> and the Americans were stunned by it because they thought, goodness me. And I was also a few meters away from Mary. I, they allowed you into the area directly below the stand so you could stand next to the next to where the long jump run was. And Mary jumped a 676 into a 1.4 wind. Yeah. When did you move into uh, relating to Jonathan? Um, so, yeah, so then I was encouraged to do the senior awards. Yeah. We had a thing called NEATS, which was the Northeast Elite Training Squad. Jonathan was basically the figurehead of this. Because of, of his, um, his religious beliefs, he didn't actually train on these Sundays, one Sunday in every month. But he used to rake the pit for me while I was coaching the sort of regional athletes, developing athletes. He was being coached by Carl. He obviously liked what I was saying. Um, over a period of time and eventually approached me and just said, would I like to coach him? And he was a full-time athlete. I was working in civil engineering. Just knew this was a big step for yeah. me. How far did he go in distance about that time, Peter? Oh, 17. He'd go up to 17 by that time. Yes, yes. 1736, I think, somewhere around there. Oh, I think so. So in, in the November 94, we started working together in sort of earnest. Worked our, th- our way through a good winter. With a guy called Norman Anderson. We used to work in the gym as well. And then we came out with a plan to um, attack the British record. We came down to Loughborough together. And I can remember it was in, in May and it was a, well, I'll call it the home international meeting. A miserly day. It was cold. It was damp. And the whole idea was that he would come out. We were pretty sure he could break the British record. So he came out. Did jump number one and beat it by one centimetre and set a new British record. And we packed up and we came back home to the northeast again <laughs> with job complete. It was, yeah, wonderful experience. Absolutely wonderful experience. And that's terrific. How long did your relationship with Jonathan last? And, and how much were you learning oh. from him as much as delivering to him? Absolutely loads. Yeah. The relationship lasted until 2003 when Jonathan retired. And that was a very, as far as I was going, a very, very sad conversation. But he'd done everything he could possibly do. Um, and he had yeah. pieces of him which were hurting. And I, I understood completely. And at that stage, he would have been, oh, goodness me, 37, 38. Oh, I didn't know that he was that old. Didn't win his Olympic gold medal until he was 30, 34. Mm. Getting on a bit, really, for, for um, doing the battle in triple jump. Well, often, I mean... Uh, you know, a triple jumper is a series of injuries held together by ligaments. Correct, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was one. I don't know how he lasted that long. You did a hell of a good job there, man, because oh, I, I wouldn't have lasted to 38. No way. I'd love to take credit, but I've got to be honest, you know, obviously had a brilliant grounding from Carl. Yeah. A superb support from Norman Anderson. I had superb support from others within athletics. John Crotty uh, was a great, Mentor Ted King, um, so many people, Malcolm Arnold. Mm-hmm. Very lucky that I was um, taken to Sydney by um, British Athletics UKA with other coaches. We were housed together as a group. We weren't in the village or anything like that. Tickets to 
the various events and the athletes that we, we, we were coaching. So yeah, it was, it was great. What can I say? It, was, it had to probably be the last shot. Um, and Jonathan actually jumped further in 86 uh, than he did in, in two, uh, sorry, 96 in 2000. But, you know, you get a gold medal for winning the competition, not just jumping further and further and further. So he, he dealt with the pressures correctly at the ground at age of 34. I think he's definitely the oldest gold medal um, triple jump winner. Peter, this is Alex here. Can you just reflect on what it meant to be the coach of the world record holder and, of course, the Olympic gold medalist? What did it mean to you? I was very, very pleased, proud, proud to be British, proud to be involved, but mostly very, very pleased for Jonathan. People don't realise how much energy, effort, he would use the word sacrifice, I would say choices, every athlete makes to be at that level and some of them are quite aggressive choices they have to make and they have to leave people behind move forward etc etc which are the best things for them so i think the most important thing was it was for him one of the good guys proves that sometimes the good guys can win absolutely exceptional uh, what a wonderful time we had as a group of coaches dave arnold uh, malcolm arnold ron rodham dave Lees. I was the baby of the family in experience and in age, actually. But what a learning experience for me. They allowed me to be part of their gang, if I could put it that way. You know, you developed a community spirit within that. I mean, it's not a team sport, but there was a sort of a community of coaches there. And I think we may have lost that. Yeah, very true. The great thing that I've, that I've got out of coaching through the whole of my career as a volunteer and, and as a professional coach, if, we, if I call myself that, is being allowed into the community i've heard other coaches say that or oh, it's a clique and all the rest of it i never actually found that i always found that people wanted to help and share their knowledge ron rodham whilst we we're in that house was the first person ever to teach me how to iron a shirt that's probably the most significant thing in your life i can't do that my wife thinks it is anyway <laughs> oh that's brilliant <laughs> ron was one of my coaches under my i wouldn't say under my control he's a great mate of mine and Chris's coach and the coach of many other fine athletes. And uh, we spent many, many hours, many happy hours down at Crystal Palace in the sort of 68 to 78 period. We had these Olympic camps, which were really quite remarkable for the time in the sense that we had all our best sprinters and middle distance runners, people at Dave Bedford, also people at Jeff Capes, all together for two days. Um, about ooh, six times a year. So Ron was a great friend of mine and, and a great loss to the athletics community. He always gave me far more credit than I deserved. I don't deserve any credit at all for what Ron did. I don't know where he, th- where he got it from. I don't remember me ever saying anything much to Coaches <laughs> of, of that sort of status, if I can put it that way, they're all accessible, happy to talk to people. I don't know any, any other way to be. Peter, from what you've been saying, an aspect of your coaching is picking up advice and learning from others. Can you just elaborate on that and perhaps give us an example of where you've been given a great piece of wisdom from someone else? I was so enthused by everybody that I spoke to. I was just like a sponge. I just started sort of feeding off everybody else. Some of the stuff you like, some of the stuff you don't like. I never felt threatened that they were, they were willing to share their information with me. When Jonathan went to various places, with other coaches, I couldn't go because I had full-time employment elsewhere. 
I was always in need to find out what they'd spoken about and what information he could give, he could find out for me. Um, another coach that was in the house, year or two later, sitting down and, and talking to Dave Lees. Just a general chat. And he said, you know, Pete, if you really want, want to measure yourself, it's great that you've worked with one Olympic gold medalist um, or an elite athlete. He said, um, can you do it again? Then you know it's not just... Not just an accident. That's right. A bit of fate. Exactly, yes. And that yeah. invigorated me. Now, what happened to you after that? What, what was your next step in coaching? Well, I was then coaching a guy who used to jump against um, uh, an athlete you were coaching at the time, Greg, um, Chris Tomlinson. Oh, cool, Chris. Yeah. So I coached Chris for 12 years um, from when he was a, a young lad um, until he moved to London. And at that time, because I was getting recognised as being quite successful, firstly with Jonathan, then with Chris, etc., um, I became national event coach. Mm-hmm. Then this brilliant mentoring scheme by England Athletics came to the fore and I applied to be involved or I was requested to, to try and get involved initially and, and therefore put an application in. Uh, I ended up working with John Crotty, who also applied. So we, we became the mentors for Horizontal Jumps. Um, and then on from there... I actually became the the lead for England Athletics and for um, British Athletics or UK Athletics for coach development, coach and athlete development. Peter, we often talk about spotting a great athlete and, oh, they look great on the track, but what does it mean to spot a good coach and how can you tell one apart from the rest? For me, it's normally a bit of a calmness about them that they think um, observational skills definitely are one of the first things that you will notice about anybody. Are they engaging with the athletes, the way they approach the athletes? And if they have almost multifaceted, and that's not a negative thing, they can actually sculpture themselves to fit with the person they're talking to. So whether it's little Johnny who's nine years old or, or Jane who's 22, they make themselves fit. They communicate correctly and appropriately with the athlete that they're dealing with where do you see the coach education program now relative to what if you can compare it with what you went through which was diverse wasn't it yes i love the diversity and i actually believe in it personally everybody wants to know about technique everybody and and we forget style of individual athletes we need to be grounded in talking and communicating to groups initially and keeping things nice and simple with youngsters and progress as a coach and with theory, with technique, if you want to call it that, as the athlete progresses. There's no need to get in so early, shall I say. Um, The basic skills should be there, the principles of every athletic event we all know about, but it's it's how we actually communicate that to the youngsters, I think, initially. You're not in a coaching situation. You're in an athletic education. That's what you're really delivering, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I go to, strangely, to a lot of different school sports. I see them at Lee Valley. You know, you see them indoors, which is unusual. And I haven't been a single one in the last two or three years where I've seen a child who had an approach running long jump. You looked in hurdles and found they didn't know which foot they were going to be on when they got to the hurdle. Or the high jump, all they did was throw themselves backwards over the bar. The area that we haven't developed in, in my view, is in the area of basic teaching. You know, coaching is advanced, but I think teaching is, is, hasn't really quite uh, caught up with it yet. One of the things I learned, one of the first things I ever learned was if you have a group of 30 youngsters and you want to find out how they're going to jump, just get them to continually hop off one leg. 
And when they've hopped 30 meters, turn them around and ask them to hop on the other leg. Mm. And if they haven't decided which one's the best one by then, help them to decide individually. Yes. I don't know the numbers, but I do know that we do less PE hours at schools than we used to. And I do know that teachers sometimes find PE as a, an additional or an annex to, I don't know, being a maths teacher or wherever it may be. And so it may not be their love. I personally was an advocate of the flying squads when coaches could go in as a group and visit schools and support them. I think that's the way forward. And the other possibility too is to, to look at the English schools results in every county and look at the age 15 plus and see if you can find, usually early developers, unfortunately, but see if you can find them and actually bring them in towards coaching because you can't get coaches out to them because logistics of that are very difficult. I would regionalise them or localise them in groups if, if that's possible. I'll go back to, oh goodness me, late 80s, early 90s, the Bread for Life scheme. And it was sponsored by some bakers. There were congregations of schools that came together and therefore then the coaches were able to coach groups. I'm not sure there's any absolutely certain answer to it, but the actual numbers that we've got in the sport are dropping year by year at senior level. And that diminishes the number of people upon whom you can draw for coaching, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, again, as I said, I thought it was the norm for parents to go along with their children and get sort of sucked into clubs. So in the late 90s, I would imagine, uh, 1990s, they had done some sort of check on the life of a coach. And basically, it was about the average was seven years. So basically, I think you turned up with your child at eight, nine years old, got sucked into doing some coaching, some assistance. Um, but when your child got to school or finished secondary school, shall we say, and there was then ready to go on to other sports or other attractions or distractions, that's when the parents opted out as well. Our whole sport revolves around coaching. You know, we talk about possibly we molecule the athletes too much and, and we're a babysitting service at the start. But if that's what we've got to be initially, then that's what we should be. And, and bearing in mind, I was head of the performance yeah. for field and combined events. We can't top load everything around yeah. performance. I get it. That's what the country sees and it's wonderful. But everything grows from roots. And that's what we're not getting where the roots aren't strong enough at the moment. One major problem, but we've got two issues within that problem. One is attracting the right calibre of coach and supporting that coach to be an even better coach. And that could be theoretically as well as practically. And then they can go back out into the community and call that. And until we have that sort of coach, I don't think we've got much chance of attracting and keeping youngsters. Because we're up against two far more sports now than we were when I was young and when you were young. And I think it's a double-edged sword at the minute. And I, and I think we need more and more and more investment in coaches, selected coaches. So I, I get where you're coming from, Tom, about going to English school championships and identifying athletes, but who's going to service those athletes? Yeah. We need to identify those coaches and support those coaches. And their workplace and their experience place will be in the clubs, which is where I think the clubs should be supporting those coaches. Yeah. And if that's financially, that's great. If they don't want financial backing, then some sort of charity or or buy more equipment or whatever it may be, that'll help attract. But interesting enough, we've got a program coming up now which I'm being involved with. The idea that we'd provide the pre-competitive group, you know, the 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, with a sports hall program in the winter and a five-star program in the summer. 
meetings where you got a certificate at the end of it so that you've got a complete competitive program for this pre-competitive period. But that, that doesn't address the issue that we're now dealing with. It doesn't address that completely. But we'd also pay the organizers of that. You wouldn't just allow them to do it on a purely voluntary basis. Each county would have somebody running it five or six meetings every winter and five or six meetings every summer. What single thing do you think, without offering something that's massively costly, single thing we could do to advance things at a reasonable speed to improve participation levels and performance, particularly in the technical events? Obviously, you can't suddenly transform things in a year or so. Again, it comes back to coaching for me. And I honestly think the club should recognise that they are, there are weaknesses within the system and the clubs should put up subscriptions, put up fees. And I think parents will pay as long as they get valued and good quality coaching for their children. My granddaughter's an, inter- an international swimmer, an international junior swimmer, and uh, 120 quid a month was for coaching. But uh, there's a lot of resistance to paying. There's still the ghost of the amateur lurking, unfortunately, Peter. My daughter pays for our granddaughter, or did pay for our granddaughter, um, to do gymnastics. And it was £90 a month, I think. The two words that always come back to me with athletic, track and field, that a lot of other sports don't have a purity and integrity. Yeah. Anything that has um, some sort of bodily contact, you can be tempted into cheating is probably, and, and I'll say that, I was a footballer, so I'll agree with, with myself on that. We have great officials, um, again, volunteers, yeah. and something else we should be looking at. Um, sport can't go on without officials as well. But it's purity of the sport. It's, it's not a case of, oh, I think this gymnastic move was better than that just gymnastic move. Therefore, this one's going to get 13.1, this one's going to get 12.9, or whatever it may be, and it's measurable. Yeah, particularly at the very beginning, when most kids never become competitive athletes, but they can compete against themselves. That's an absolute certainty. And, and it's certain they'll get better because, you know, they're bound to get better by even just by a product of age, even whatever else happens, isn't it? Exactly. Well, initially, I thought I was a good coach when I was coaching youngsters, but they were getting better just because they were naturally developing. Do you feel that the relationship between the voluntary coach and the professional setup? has improved or stayed the same or got worse? I think it's a difficult relationship because I think if you speak to almost any volunteer coach who is is developing themselves, probably one of the things they really want to do is become Mm -hmm. a professional coach. There aren't very many opportunities to be a professional coach, that is for sure. Satisfaction as a coach, to me, that's the currency of coaching as a volunteer. And you mentioned about athletes competing against themselves. And I think coaches do the same. You're forever looking to yeah. assist an athlete by finding out some more information or, and, and hopefully using information in a better way. But that doesn't mean coaches should be competing with each other at all. Um, I've never competed with other coaches because there's, there's no way to compete with them. It's all down to the athletes. That's a very good point. Are you, are you staying in athletics in any way at all? Um, I'm doing some... Background mentoring at the moment, yes, with a, a couple of coaches and a couple of athletes, which is nice. So I'm quite enjoying that. The beauty of it is I've, I've got a lot of friends and acquaintances around the world. That's something else that athletes has given to me, which is brilliant. So still coaches that I talk to and keep in contact with. <laughs>